Welcome to Securing Justice, a podcast series created by the California Center for Ethics and Policy, or CCEP, at Cal Poly Pomona, and generously supported by California Humanities. The focus of our podcast is housing insecurity, an issue that affects millions in the United States and is particularly acute here in California. My name is Brady Collins, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Cal Poly Pomona and Faculty Fellow with CCEP. This podcast will explore housing and security through a variety of means, panel discussions, interviews, and creative works by faculty and students. Our aim is not necessarily to debate solutions to housing and security in California, though you will find some of that here, but rather to examine the multiple ways in which housing and security is experienced by different groups and individuals. From artists and activists to philosophers and policy wonks, we hope to provide listeners with a varied and nuanced look at how housing and security affects the lives of Californians and what we and you can do about it. In this first episode, we share with you the first of what was a series of panel discussions hosted by CCEP this past spring semester. This discussion, titled Housing Justice from Trump to Biden, brings together four panelists to discuss the role and impact of the federal government on housing and security under the Trump and Biden administrations. This is our most policy-heavy panel discussion, but by providing a macro-level perspective on the politics of housing and security, I think it appropriately sets the stage for our later episodes to take a closer look at the lived experiences of the housing insecure. A quick note. Due to COVID-19, these panels were held remotely via Zoom. As a result, you may hear at times the panelists refer to visuals that they are presenting to the audience through Zoom's screen share function. If you're interested, the video recordings of these discussions are available at CCEP's website, which is posted in the show notes. We ask that if you like what you hear, if you care about these issues, please share our podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to Securing Justice, a housing insecurity podcast series brought to you by the California Center for Ethics and Policy in the College of Letters, Arts, and Social Sciences at Cal Poly Pomona, generously supported by a grant from Cal Humanities. Today, we are pleased to bring you a panel discussion, Housing Justice from Trump to Biden. The beginning of a new administration in Washington creates the potential for innovation and bold leadership throughout the federal government. This is especially true for departments and programs that are usually considered low profile backwaters of the bureaucracy, but which, which could have a tangible impact on the most urgent issues of social inequity, such as the shortage of affordable housing, barriers to home ownership, the economic consequences of high housing costs on household income and asset building and homelessness. With the transition from the Trump to the Biden administration, the role and efficacy of the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, as well as federal housing legislation will be crucial in addressing the social inequities that result from California's shortage of affordable housing. Panelists today will discuss what Congress and HUD have and have not accomplished under the Trump administration, how this has impacted the housing insecure in Southern California, and what housing policies we can expect under and should demand from the Biden administration with an emphasis on how these broader federal questions impact Southern California specifically. 
Today's esteemed panelists are Joan Ling from UCLA in Urban Planning and former director of the Community Corporation of Santa Monica, Christina Michelski, who's at California State uh, Northridge, uh, who's in philosophy and an activist with the LA Tenants Union and Democratic Socialists of America, Tom Safran, chairman of Tom Safran and Associates, a real estate development uh, organization, and Joe Donlin, who is deputy director for Strategic Actions for a Just Economy, or SAGE. And today's event is going to be moderated by Professor Anthony Orlando at CPP in Finance, Real Estate, and Law. So on that note, I'm going to turn things over to Anthony. And uh, let me, I'd like to, to welcome everybody. Um, give, it, give everybody a virtual round of applause for showing up today. Thank you. You can't hear it, but people are applauding. Thanks, Alex. Uh, and thank you all for joining us. Um, I think we have a really exciting panel with some diverse, interesting viewpoints today. So I want to jump right in. Since we're talking about moving from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, I want to kind of move chronologically. Let's start by talking about what we're just emerging out of. The secretary of HUD under the Trump administration was Ben Carson. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't hear much about Ben Carson in the news over the last four years. There was some other news happening at the same time, so maybe that makes sense. But maybe our panelists, and I'll open this to everyone, maybe our panelists could help enlighten for the rest of us, what did Ben Carson do? Tom, feel free to jump in. Ben Carson didn't want HUD. Ben Carson wanted a different position. But uh, those of you who are old enough to remember Ronald Reagan, he had one secretary for all eight years, both terms. His name was Sam Pierce. And his job was similar to Ben Carson's job. And that was to be the black representative on the cabinet. And two years into Ben Carson's position, I was honored at a dinner and the speaker was the assistant secretary unnamed uh, who, you could find out he was the Houston housing director and a Republican. And he indicated that the White House had several people in his office and the secretary had three, if I remember this right. And they, their job was to make sure that they didn't do anything. And uh, the one thing that they did at HUD in four years and the goal throughout the administration was to undo Obama policies and the only policy that I noticed that they undid uh, at HUD was the fair housing policy. And uh, Biden's going to reassert that one, I'm assuming, of Obama. But there was no desire on their part whatsoever to do anything at HUD in their programs. And that was started, that never existed before. That started under Reagan. And uh, that's my observation. That's helpful. The affirmatively furthering fair housing rule. I was wondering, maybe, Joe, if you could illuminate for us a little bit about what that rule is and why it was so controversial. So affirmatively, if you can say it, affirmatively furthering fair housing, AFFH, um, you know, is a, a part of um, an implementation structure for the um, Fair Housing Act. And in, I think it was 2015, the Obama administration had created a rule to, to more proactively implement and enforce the Fair Housing Act. And basically it required 
um, local jurisdictions that were um, uh, receiving federal dollars and other federal agencies to to uphold the the you know the main objectives, which is to um, you know reduce uh, housing discrimination and racial segregation. And basically, like here in Los Angeles and in other communities, um, put to, they put together AFFH plans that looked at existing policies, existing um, uh, kind of dynamics in communities and neighborhoods, and put together a plan to, to ensure that fair housing uh, was achieved. And um, last year, the Trump administration rescinded that rule, um, at, you know, with a lot of Twitter um, flair added to it, um, a lot of um, kind of racist language came out. Um, you know, Trump's tweet, I think I have it here to, to quote. He said, I'm happy to inform all of the people living in their suburban lifestyle dream that you will no longer be bothered or financially hurt by having low-income housing built in your neighborhood. Your housing prices will go up based on the market and crime will go down. I have rescinded the Obama Biden AFFH rule, enjoy. Um, you know, and that's appealing to kind of these racist notions that um, have been around for a very long time, associated with low-income housing, affordable housing, public housing, um, some coded language, sometimes not so coded language. And, you know, I, I think a, a lot of folks have worried what that would mean, but many cities, including LA, continue to practice and implement that rule even after it was rescinded. Joan, as, as the urban planning expert on the panel, I know you, you know a lot about the history of Los Angeles and cities like Los Angeles and these types of segregation. I was wondering if you could just give us a little basic understanding of how bad segregation is and the effects that it has on the community um, throughout Los Angeles and why fair housing matters. Yes, Los Angeles is, on one of, is considered one of the most segregated cities in the country. And um, as you know, that uh, in resource-rich areas, there are more jobs, better schools, and um, better amenities uh, to support uh, families and children. And the fact is that we have been building affordable housing primarily in distressed areas where these resources are fewer. And there's been um, quite a bit of scholarship looking at opportunities in um, where um, and HUD actually about 10, 20 years ago experimented with um, a program called Moving to Opportunities. And um, one of my colleagues, Michael Lenz, looked at whether and how um, families' um, quality of life can improve and opportunities could improve by moving to um, places that are economically um, better off. And the results are mixed. It's not just about moving to the right place or better place. It also has to do with how people are integrated into the community. Um, but the bottom line is that um, being living in resource areas are important. And in California, the state legislature understands that, and there has been attempt over the last few years to um, pass state legislation that it that would encourage um, more density in resource areas, 
didn't pass. Um, and uh, encourage more accessory dwelling units in single family areas. And in fact, the trend is to get rid of single family zoning so that uh, we can eliminate one of the sources of uh, exclusionary housing. Christina, what has it been like from your perspective, do you think for activists working over the last four years in an environment like this? Has it has it made a difference for people on the ground to have a federal administration that was hostile to trying to address these kinds of issues? Um, well, before I answer that, I actually want to mention two more things that Ben Carson did, which Please. were of note. One was the Trump administration attempt to uh, eliminate HUD eligibility for mixed status families. So that would be a family where you have an immigrant uh, and a non-immigrant who is eligible uh, for this, the funding. So they didn't want, even if the immigrant member was not themselves receiving the subsidy, but was just a member of a family in which they were receiving a subsidy, um, they wanted to take that away. I don't actually know if Biden said anything publicly about that yet, so I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I assume uh, that he's not going to support that. Um, the other thing that was kind of curious, I don't think it resulted in any um, action on HUD's part under Ben Carson, but he did publicly declare himself a friend of the YIMBY movement, which stands for Yes in My Backyard. Um, and I think that was somewhat surprising um, to to everyone. So the, that's what was going on with HUD. But I, I mostly agree with Tom's point that uh, that he didn't want it. And so you saw HUD mostly not doing things. Um, I think from the perspective on the ground, local policy has a much bigger effect on people day to day. Um, so in Los Angeles, there were the same people uh, and the, the same conditions to fight against that we always had in, in terms of housing, which was a democratic supermajority in the state legislature. Um, and a largely democratic city and other local, you know, municipalities around within LA County. That makes sense. Now, in the lead up to this pandemic, we had um, increasingly unaffordable housing, uh, increasing housing insecurity problems. And I want to talk a little bit about that as the, the setting into which the pandemic entered and now the Biden administration. Joan, could you start us off by talking a little bit, since you already talked a little bit about uh, density and zoning, could you talk a little bit about why we have such a housing affordability crisis in Los Angeles and how bad it is? Well, there are a few fundamental trends that have created the affordability crisis we have now. And I want to start by giving you an idea of how large is the crisis. So in 2016, McKinsey, um, a consulting firm, did a report um, for the California um, legislature, and it concluded by saying that there is a $50 billion affordability gap per year, five zero billion with a B every year. In other words, the amount of housing costs that people are burdened with is about $50 billion a year. It has only gone up since. And I'm gonna share screen with you one slide about um, you know, what does it mean on a, you know, on a human level. So if you look at on the right-hand side, 
the number of California's extremely low-income low households that are severely burdened, basically 80% of extremely low-income households is severely burdened. That means they pay over 50% of their gross income in rent, and 90% is rent cost burden, housing cost burden, meaning they pay more than 30% of their uh, gross income in rent. For very low income, slightly ever better, but still totally unacceptable. That's the human cost that we're facing. You know, um, uh, we are short about 1.3 million, 1.3 million units of affordable housing. So how did we get there? Uh, local cities' reluctance to um, zone generously for mid middle income and low income housing over the last four or five decades. Um, the bifurcation of income and rents, income being static after the peace dividend. Remember when you know Soviet Union went away? So did all the you know engineering jobs um, in California bifurcation of static income and growing housing cost. Um, those have created our, you know, increasing affordability crisis. When I first came to Los Angeles in 1978, there wasn't much of a crisis or affordability issue. There was some, but manageable. By the 80s, we were already starting to talk about affordability crisis. And we've been talking about it for the last 40 years, and it's just gotten much worse. So those are the, the trends that we have to live with and the Gordian knot that we have to uh, untie if we want to um, solve this problem. Yeah. Joe, I want to try to put a human face on some of the numbers that Joan's talking about. You, you work with some of these tenants, and when I see that 79% of the extremely low-income households are so cost-burdened. How do they deal with that? What do they have to cut back on? What are their what are their survival strategies? Yeah, it really is a, a matter of survival. Um, we we work with tenants in South Central Los Angeles, largely um, black, and, black and Latinx, um, large immigrant population, and um, you know it's certainly not a new experience to experience housing insecurity, um, eviction. Many of our members and folks that we work with in South LA have experienced serial displacement, meaning they've been displaced from one place to the next and often eventually into homelessness or houselessness. And to prevent that, um, you know, they have to make, you know, dire choices often. Uh, we have a member who spoke about having to make the choice um, between, you know, keeping her job and being able to take care of her son who has a medical illness because they got displaced so far away from her job that all of her time was spent, you know, traveling to get back to her job. Um, you know, the simple choices of, you know, can I pay rent or buy food for my family? Um, and the, the, the great instability, uh, that comes with being evicted or being displaced is, you know, tremendous trauma that can affect um, family members, of course, children being torn away from their friends in their schools to older adults, and especially folks with differing abilities, disabilities, 
Um, you know, this is not a new um, situation we're in, you know, on an annual basis, anywhere from two to three million folks each year, you know, end up in a formal eviction process. And that says nothing about um, informal evictions and informal displacement um, that could be uh, multiples of that number. Um, certainly with COVID now, you know, those numbers are, are much bigger. But to your question, uh, families uh, face uh, unbelievable um, decisions in terms of um, how to deal with this. And, you know, I think in this current moment, you see how dire it is because tenants are in the streets amidst a pandemic um, around the country and locally shutting down courthouses where evictions are still being filed despite you know many measures to slow evictions. Um, it is literally a matter of life and death. Christina, I, I want to come back to you and, and talk for a moment about why we should invest so much time and effort trying to solve this problem. What are the perspectives that different people have on a social justice issue like this? Why, why do you think it's such an important issue to help these families? And why do you find so much pushback uh, from so many Americans? Well, one thing that's interesting is I think there's a narrative that's taken hold that housing is um, very complicated, that regular people can't figure it out or something like that. So Joan even described it as a Gordian knot. Um, so I think right now it's, it's, not really that most Americans are pushing back on on helping people. I think, like, from my perspective, the most useful things are very popular. So rent control, um, I think, is effective and popular. It it just happens to be mostly illegal in a, in a lot of places because of a series of laws, not just in California, but then that got popular in, in other states that attempted to restrict rent control, the amount of rent control that local cities um, could pass. Um, and, and that's led to a situation which now over decades, people have sort of forgotten what kind of rent control can even exist because we've been without it for so long or we've been in a situation in which it wasn't allowed. So um, in Los Angeles, the rent stabilization ordinance um, you know, only applies to buildings built before 1978. <laughs> Um, now there's a statewide rent cap in California that would apply uh, to buildings built before 1995, but that only forbids increases of 5% or more per year. But an increase of 5% is absolutely out of, you know, out of the ability of, of many people um, to pay if many people got a 5% or even a 3%, which is what Los Angeles allows on rent control buildings that causes them to basically be displaced because incomes are not rising at the same at the same level. And from from what we know, I think it, you know, as with polls it always depends on how you answer the question, but from what we know, I think rent control is actually very popular. People just have this worry that it doesn't exist or or that it doesn't work because it's only going to apply to certain properties and it and it's going to squeeze other people out, but I think it's actually um if we looked at it as something that could be applied universally, right, and was not something that we applied only to some buildings that then that then led to competition for, for other places, right? It's one of those policies that works so much better the more broadly it's applied. 
it's just that right now it's very it is very different difficult politically to to achieve that because i think throughout the 90s there were a lot of successful restrictions of of rent control and so in california uh we still don't have the ability for a city cannot pass stronger rent control um they wanted to um because of the costa hawkins law so that from from my perspective, I think that's sort of one of the biggest barriers. And I think back, you know, in the seventies, you people would were actually talking about federal level rent control. From my perspective, that's sort of an idea that we should bring back because I think it would be incredibly popular. Interesting. So in so those are some of the political constraints, and that, I think that's really helpful to frame it. And now to that, I want to layer on, if Tom can help us see a little bit of the constraints in the marketplace, I think this comes back to, you know, Joan was talking about some of the challenges with developing affordable housing in a place like Los Angeles. You've done it. And so I'm curious, what's it like trying to develop affordable housing in a marketplace that's so challenging, and how expensive is it? I have a bunch to say. Well, first of all, the real estate property owners absolutely don't want rent control, and the lobby against it, it was on the ballot again. It's been on the ballot twice in the last two years, and the lobby against doing it was tremendous. And people don't want you to get in their way of running their business. Go back to 1968. The Kerner Commission report said everyone, a federal commission that LBJ, Lyndon Johnson put together said every American is entitled to a decent, safe and sanitary home. I started my career in 69 working for HUD in Chicago and transferred here in 70 left in 74 and started my own business, mostly developing affordable housing, occasionally market rate. George Romney was the secretary of HUD for the first term of Nixon, Mitt's father, Mitt Romney's father, and he was a liberal Republican. And he was incensed by the riots after Martin Luther King's death. And he was determined to enforce fair housing. And all the things you've talked about in terms of putting housing everywhere, not just in the inner city, impacted low-income areas. And Nixon didn't reappoint him to the second term. But he was my favorite secretary of HUD. And my second favorite was Carla Hills, appointed by Ford. Everything changed when Reagan became president. There is no commitment to give Americans a decent, safe, and sanitary house. So you got to start with that. Just like we don't have it for medical care, there isn't, there is a majority, apparently. Biden got elected. But for housing, that doesn't exist. And if it doesn't exist, then there isn't a will of enough voters throughout the country and even in California to guarantee and give that right. But there is a change. When I moved here in 70, the LA City Council had five out of 15 members who were supportive of housing. When Bradley became for 20 years the mayor, there would be six, seven, eight, he would get it, eight, nine votes out of 15. The Board of Supervisors, when I moved here, 
had four men, five men on it. And there were four Republicans and one Democrat, Kenny Hahn, Janet Hahn and uh, Jimmy Hahn's father. He was pro-affordable housing, a pro-affirmative fair housing, but there weren't those votes. Now we have four Democrats, all women. What a change. And even the Republican is very reasonable in this department. And so you have five members of the four Democrats, one Republican. And in the city council, we have 14 Democrats and one Republican, John Lee in the Northwest Valley, who doesn't particularly want affordable housing. L.A. City is a strong council, weak mayor, former government. Every city council member, we have here Michael Wu, who could talk about that. But basically, he's he was, what, two terms, Michael, right? Was a city council member, and he was able to make things happen as district. I did several projects while he was there. We have Mike Bonin representing my area, which is the area of LA City, south of the uh, Mulholland and west of the 405. Mike is a lefty on the city council. And before he ran for a second term, he put up three city-owned sites for affordable housing owned by the city. His predecessor, Bill Rosendahl, who considered himself a lefty, didn't make that happen. He was afraid of the pushback from neighbors about making city sites available. I'm currently building on Bundy between Santa Monica, so West LA, the old West LA animal shelter. I'm doing 74 low-income family units, and we are trying to get funding for a project on the edge of Marina Del Rey. So if you have a supportive city council member, you do it in these um, beautiful neighborhoods you know, of West LA. But what I said to Bill Rosendahl like eight, nine years ago, it isn't gonna happen in upscale areas because people will take the land and use it for market rate condos or apartments. They're not going to use it unless the city makes land available or the city, or if somebody is as foolish as me, I took a West LA piece of property west of the 405 and it cost 10 and a half million to buy it. And I, and so this is a story I want to relate to why is it difficult and what's happened with Joan talking. The big thing that happened in California that makes it difficult is we have a California Environmental Quality Act and it is used all the time to stop development and particularly neighbors don't want it. And I'll give a quick example. So Bill said, I've been in office four years and nobody's done affordable housing in my district. And I said, make land available. He said, well, come on, why don't you do it? And I got inspired and I bought up this property and I got neighborhood council approval for 178 unit five-story building for a senior project. I got to the planning commission. There were six neighbors who opposed it. One of them, a litigating attorney. He 
appealed against the project. Were Michael, were you on the planning commission then? You might have been. I have a memory. You weren't. Okay. The planning commission by a 6-1 vote approved the 178 units. I got to the city council and there were now 10 neighbors opposed to it. And I agreed to compromise and reduce it to a three, four, five story, 155 unit building. And I got a, a unanimous vote from the city council. Within a week, I had a lawsuit filed against the city and myself for on the California Environmental Quality Act. And in order to stop the lawsuit or settle it, I reduced the project to three and four story, 124 units. It still took me, which is another part of the story, two and a half years from that date of settlement to get the funding to do this project. I have 10 projects trying to get funding. I have projects, I'm partners with the Gay and Lesbian Center in Hollywood on a project that's nearly completed. We sat with all of our approvals for two years without funding for the project. We didn't have any lawsuit and any opposition. So funding is a big problem. The Environmental Quality Act is a problem. Even where you have supportive cities and supportive city councils, et cetera, there isn't enough funding. But the last thing I wanna say, a big change in affordable housing. When I described what it was like when I moved here, now we have the city council and the supervisors, the legislature, everyone's behind doing affordable housing. But you have people opposed to some of the methods that they're using, which is increasing the zoning. I live in an area in Brentwood in a single family house, a half a block from San Vicente. The legislation that they're proposing would increase the density that they could do multiple family housing and override local zoning. And that's at play now. You know, will they get the votes and will they get the government support of that? I think it's a sledgehammer that I think they could do other things to work with cities on zoning. So it's all of these things that we're talking about, not in my neighborhood, fighting projects and funding and zoning, but there really is a lot of zoning and availability throughout most communities in California. There just isn't enough funding or the political will on a particular city council. So there's my statement. Well, I wanna thank all of you for that thoroughly depressing uh, overview. <laughs> Let's. Let's then focus on some things we can do about it. Now, what Tom has been talking about has been helpful, I think, to lay the groundwork for what the states and the cities are facing. Uh, and Christina helped us understand, especially from the state level. Joe, maybe we can talk now about what the feds can do about this, the Biden administration. You were talking earlier about tenants facing eviction uh, and the, the challenges of being displaced through that. And we all know that that risk has gone up dramatically during the pandemic. If you were going to be Secretary of HUD or if you had uh, the incoming secretary's ear, what would you be saying is the way to deal with this eviction crisis, not only during the pandemic, but 
into the future. Because as you know, it's not something that just started during the pandemic. It's just that it's gotten worse. Exactly. We've long had an eviction crisis and housing insecurity crisis. And so there's much that needs to be done, whether we're in a pandemic or not. Um, you know, in this time, as we're going through the pandemic, the, the eviction numbers um, have skyrocketed or those at risk of eviction, um, even with the CDC order in place, which is not a true moratorium or ban on evictions um, and, and many local um, eviction protections during this time are not um, real bans. We had a real ban um, this past uh, spring and summer when um, the Judicial Council of um, California had put in their rule one that stopped eviction filings um, for a time. And we saw the dramatic impact that that had. Um, you know, what we need to see at the federal level um, is dramatic um, investment, dramatic rule changes. Um, and, you know, Christina mentioned federal rent control um, being crucial. Um, I would add to the list uh, the need to um, codify a right to counsel for all tenants facing an eviction. I think, you know, we have local campaigns and even statewide campaigns across the country, including in LA, San Francisco passed that via the ballot. New York was the first to to codify it, um, but when you have a right to counsel, you're um, you're bringing some balance to a very um, imbalanced process. 90% uh, of tenants face an eviction without an attorney, whereas 90% of landlords have an attorney. Um, and you know the deterrent effect that that has um, in places where a right to counsel is is dramatic, and it demonstrates how often there many eviction filings are meritless, they're baseless, um, but landlords know they can get away with them because there's uh, you know, few resources or awareness about how to exercise any rights that may exist. Um, you know, at this time during COVID, um, 30 to 40 million uh, people are at risk of eviction because of you know, loss of income or other economic impacts due to COVID. Um, and you know, we're seeing uh, finally some significant rental assistance that's coming from the feds. Um, you know, what many have called for and um, both at the local and federal level is, um, is rent forgiveness and mortgage payment forgiveness. Um, and, you know, also targeting um, small landlords and affordable housing providers with, um, with assistance. Uh, we know that there's a lot of corporate landlords that, that don't need any particular help. They've perhaps gotten PPP loans and other resources and can weather these kinds of storms. Um, but we know the burden is really um, uh, set upon tenants and renters and we need the relief to get to them as soon as possible because we are in a pandemic and this is a public health emergency. Um, we've seen rental assistance programs be really challenged um, with um, uh, low participation rates by landlords who would prefer not to take the money and you know follow their eviction process because they see profits on the other side of that. Um, and we you know just had a, a bill passed yesterday in the state legislature SB 91 um, that that does not require landlords to participate. Um, the federal dollars do not um, uh, 
come close to meeting the need that's out there. Um, you know, in LA alone, we're estimating between, you know, around $300 and $600 million of unpaid rent. Um, and the portion that the city of LA or the county of LA will receive um, will, will not come close to addressing that. And so what we're proposing um, within the Healthy LA Coalition and other coalitions is to um, take regulate, regulatory action to cancel the rent or, or forgive the rent um, and then put those federal dollars to the small landlords, to the affordable housing providers and others that are at greatest risk because we also wanna prevent corporate consolidation of our neighborhoods. And so there's a lot that needs to happen at the federal level that, that could be federal action. It can also um, happen at the local level. Thank you, that, that was helpful. I think one of, the, one of the great fears if we don't take actions like this is that a crisis that already existed, which is the crisis of homelessness, will only grow worse. And I think it's, we're already seeing that it is, um, even though we don't have uh, this year's point in time count. And so I was wondering if, uh, Christina, you could talk a little bit about what you see as solutions for that crisis, uh, both what we can do locally and what the Biden administration can do with the right funding. Uh, is it possible to solve the homelessness crisis? I absolutely think it is. Um, I think the step of the Biden administration saying that they will fully fund um, basically Project Room Key-like efforts if the cities pay hotels to house people uh, who need housing, housing rapidly, I think that's um, an amazing step. But one problem with uh, our earlier attempt at Project Room Key was simply that hotels declined to participate. So they were offered, you know, <laughs> we'll pay you put people uh, in your rooms and they said, no thanks. <laughs> and Joe mentioned landlords doing the same thing. And that's a crisis that I've heard about from so many different people who won the lottery. I mean, it was a lottery that we had a, a while ago um, just in the city of LA uh, for rental assistance. And people got so excited, they won the lottery. They presented to their landlord, <laughs> here you go. The landlord said, I don't want, I don't want it. The money's not good if it comes from the government because they do see the profits on the, on the other side of it. And there are a lot of landlords taking advantage of people. So unless we have programs that require landlord participation or require hotel participation, I don't think we'll get the, we just won't get the numbers that we need to solve it. But if we did require those things, we absolutely could solve it. There are a lot of empty hotel rooms because tourism isn't happening. It's good for hotels to be paid when they wouldn't otherwise have guests. So it's it's not in any sense something I think you could worry uh, about, uh, you know, about them them going under. Which some of them I would I wouldn't mind if they went under at this point. But even that isn't you know isn't their complaint. So I think these policies need to be carefully thought about. It's not we do need big 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 federal investment in these things, but. Uh, we also need to make sure we pair it with some reason for uh, these, these places to participate, some requirement that they do that. If we did that, it would actually be easy um, to, to solve, I, I believe, even though it's a gigantic crisis and there are so many people in need of that assistance, it's also a global pandemic where there's absolutely <laughs> almost zero tourism, although still somewhat, which is kind of strange, but there's so much empty space uh, at the at the same time. So I think it's absolutely solvable. 
I'd like to add uh, some numbers to this. The Economic Roundtable published a report recently, and they used um, the um, unemployment and um, homelessness data from the uh, years of the Great Recession, and they used the same. You know, they used that in uh, those few years and used a regression to figure out and project in two years and three years to 2023, how bad homelessness might be as a result of the COVID recession that we are going to go, we are in, and that we are continue to go into. And as you can see that the trend is pretty alarming, we're going, the projection is that we will more than double the number of homeless people. That's pretty scary. The other thing that I'd like to share with you is some numbers that I put together up here. So Biden in it, you know, in his campaign had, had said in the in his housing policy that he wants to make rentals housing voucher available to every eligible American household. And uh, what, what does it mean in dollar terms? And is it realistic for us to hold him to account on that. Um, first of all, by the way, we don't have a budget that's approved, but let's just, you know, let's not worry about the details, but this is what is in the fiscal year to 2021 uh, proposed budget, which has been, which has not been approved yet. But um, the number of all federal rental subsidies, um, in, you know, the number of households that, these rental subsidies would assist is about 4.6 million households. The amount in the HUD budget that will go towards paying for all these vouchers is about $41 billion. We know that only about a quarter of eligible households, rental households, are currently assisted by federal affordable housing programs. So if you do the calculations, it, it to cover all eligible renters, the additional amount that's needed is $124 billion a year. The additional amount that needs to be covered to help all eligible renter households is about 20, $124 billion a year. Is it realistic for the Biden administration to um, meet this amount? Well, the federal budget is almost $5 trillion. But the thing is that only $1.5 trillion is discretionary. The rest are like entitlement programs and uh, national debt interest payment that's off limits to you know, housing vouchers programs. Of that $4.8 trillion budget, $1 trillion is in deficit spending. So we really only have $3.8 trillion of revenues of, but you know, but this is the number to look at, about one and a half trillion dollars of discretionary spending. Um, against this backdrop, that means that roughly, roughly we would need to spend about 10% of the discretionary budget to make rental vouchers rental assistance available to all eligible households. So the question I would have is financially, is it doable or not doable? That's a matter of political will.
If we want to do it, I think that we can. Can we do it in the current Congress and administration? Um, you know, your guess is as good as mine. And I believe that if we do provide rental assistance to everybody who is eligible, that goes a long way to addressing our homeless crisis. It doesn't address our affordability crisis um, completely, but I believe that it will address in substantial terms our homeless crisis. Why does it not address our affordability crisis completely? It's because rental vouchers really only work in markets, housing markets that are reasonably balanced. In California, where we are living in a very supply constrained market, just because you have a voucher, just because you're able to pay rent at the 40th percentile of a rental markets payment, that's how HUD, HUD sets the uh, rental assistance. Just because you're able to pay that doesn't mean that there are landlords and units available you have, uh, units available and landlords interested in you know, renting a unit to you. To follow up on that, can you talk a little bit about any subsidies or programs that are out there that the government does have to help increase supply? Uh, since we've, you know, if you've addressed it from the renter's perspective, what about from, from that construction and rehab perspective? So on the supply side, um, the, pri the primary um, funding for housing production is the federal low-income housing tax credit program. I believe that Tom uses a lot of that in his projects. Um, but the challenge is that in, in California, between federal and state low-income housing tax credits, about less than 20,000 affordable units are produced. And as you might remember, I showed you a chart that said that we need 1.3 million affordable housing units in order to address our affordability crisis, our supply constraints for low-income housing. So, you know, let's just round up and be generous. 20,000 units a year production and again, uh, 1.3 million units that we need. You know, you do the math and figure out how many years it would take for us to get there. So, um, you know, the, the, the amount of money available realistically is just not able to meet the need. Um, you know, housing to me in the end is not a market commodity. It's a essential human need. And we need to look at it that way. Christina, can, can you be the philosophy professor in the room for a moment? Can I throw the question to you? Why is housing a human right? I mean, I get asked that question as a real estate professor, but I, I know my answer is not as good as yours. So I think it'd be helpful for the audience. I think conceptually, we can actually approach it from, from different positions. I, I do believe if, if you like the framework of human rights, then housing has to be one of them. It has as big a claim to being a human right as, as anything else, if not bigger, because uh, you can't do other things without some sort of shelter. Uh, you literally, you know, LA is pouring the last couple of days. Um, we have people dying from hypothermia in one of the most temperate climates um, simply because they don't have a, have a place to live. Um, so if anything is a human right in, in terms of um, a material need, housing has a claim to be one of those things. 
But I don't think you even need the perspective of, of human rights. You can also look at it in terms of equity um, or just uh, equality in general. You can, you can look at it as, you know, do you want to live in a society in which we all feel that we owe each other something and we relate to each other as equals and, and the basic precondition for that kind of relation, which I think we would need to even have a democracy or, or to fulfill any of our ide ideals. Um, you know, a basic precondition of that is that, you know, you're dry and healthy and fed and, and you have a place to sleep. Um, so I think you can also look at it in those terms, which would give you the same sort of conceptual uh, underpinning for it. Um, I wanted to just point out that subsidies to private landlords and, and even low income tax credits are relatively expen expensive and inefficient compared to directly providing the housing. Um, and that's something that we really don't do that much in the United States is have the government just directly provide the, the housing, you know, old fashioned uh, public housing. Um, but I also just wanna point out too, how much this is even worse on the West Coast. So you have so little public housing available uh, on the West Coast and, and especially um, in Southern California and in LA compared to other cities in the US, which they, it's not like they have a lot, <laughs> but we have so much less per capita um, out here in the Los Angeles area of, of just straight public housing. And that's a relatively inexpensive way to do things because as Joanne pointed out, when you give a subsidy to a landlord, you're at the mercy of what the market is charging or the rent, whereas if you're directly providing the, the thing that people need, even if you're only providing some of it as a baseline for the very low income people, um, it's really, really important to, to fill that gap. And so to me, that's the most efficient means of increasing supply of low income housing. I'd like to follow up with uh, Christina's comment about, sure, you know, um, in Singapore, the city state has built well over a million flats over the last four to five decades and they're sold at subsidized um, prices to citizens, residents on 99 year lease. So it can be done that we could be, you know, building, you know, whether we, I'm agnostic, whether we build it for rent or for sale, I tend to believe that housing should be community owned, but Singapore has a model that has worked well in that city state, Denmark, 43% of all rental housing is social housing owned by nonprofits and public entities. And uh, they don't have the kind of stigma that public housing has in this country. So the point I wanna make is that public housing, social housing, whatever you wanna call it, can be done and it can be done in a, um, um, it can be done with good design, healthy, in a healthy environment, um, with equity, and justice, and those are the examples that we should be following, and not to be fighting over dollar and cents about you know whether and whether people deserve the housing or not. Tom, you wanted to jump in. Did did you still have something to add to this? Yes, I started my career as I said in '69 in uh, Chicago, and I spent a month at a 4,500 unit high-rise complex in the near west side of Chicago. I interned there. Public housing in many parts of the country were failures, and it was particularly failures when 
the costs were dramatically controlled and government agencies, housing authorities did dense housing in order to get more units. California, those who know where Chavez Ravine is, which is Dodger Stadium, that was acquired by the city housing authority in order in which to build high rise public housing. And in 52, there was a proposition on the ballot, which became Article 34, which required all communities to have votes to build publicly owned housing. And that stopped. That's why California has so little public housing. And I think, fortunately, Chavez Ravine wasn't built with high-rise public housing. You go to St. Louis, you go to Chicago, most of it's been torn down. Government employees, I'm sorry, don't belong in managing and owning and operating housing. I don't believe that. I think it's a failure. It's been a failure in most parts of the country. Even in New York, where it's more successful, they don't have the money to manage the housing. We don't have the political will in this country to give everyone a decent, safe, and sanitary housing. We haven't had the will. We did have it as a government commission, as I said, in 68. So be careful when you want to have government own and operate it. I don't think it's efficient in the numbers. I can't do that comparison, but we got to be careful with that. So that's why the government developed in 68 the 236 program for multifamily rental housing. And then they came up with the Section 8 in 1974. And then Reagan came in and what did he do? He killed the Section 8 program for any new construction and uh, substantial rehab. And then in 86, we got the federal tax credit program. And what's amazing is that program is supported by Democrats and Republicans. And that's why it's kept going in spite of different administrations. It all gets down to, you said it's a political, you believe that housing, I'm talking, Christina, your comment, and I, I 100% agree with you. It is a right. I agree with that for medical, that both of those, we should make a right. We have a difference with this administration, but he's got to tread very carefully in how much money they try for and how big of a program we create. And that's to be determined and it's going to be fought over. He, you know, we the the vote in the legislatures are 50-50 in the Senate. And uh Nancy Pelosi only has a few votes in that in the uh, House. You know, and I hope that what you talk about, what Joan pointed out. All of that volume isn't going to happen. So another way it could happen, if their cities would say, you can't build a project without a percentage of affordable housing. Tom Bradley pushed that in the mid-70s, 77, 15%. It started in the early 70s. There were five votes in the city council for that in the early 70s. There were seven votes and Tom Bradley. It needed eight to require it. Um, but never got more than that. 
And that is a way, if that was a policy that we said every building built has to put in a percentage of affordable housing, that's a way to do it. It would reduce the value of the land, but it would be an equal playing field. I don't see that happening. I see cities fighting that. It would only happen if the state of California has that, and they are tempting those things, but that's it's going to be very, very challenging. Those are some really important challenges that I think housing policies faced historically. And so I want to I want to use that as a, as a launching point to talk about how we can do it better. I do also want to point out to the audience, if you want to ask a question, please feel free to type it in the chat. We've got about 20 minutes left. I'm going to keep an eye on the chat. If I can work your question in, I'd, I'd really love to hear what's on all of your minds. Joe, I was, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the historic challenges that Tom raised with public housing and how we might be able to do it better in the future. Is, is it always the case that you think if we built public housing, it would turn into that kind of a problem? Or is there a better way to build it and maintain it sustainable? Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I think to, to answer an earlier question you asked, you know, you know, how did we get here in terms of our housing crisis? You know, another way to answer that is that we've ended up in a system that has increasingly commodified our housing. Um, you know, it's created real estate as a primary store of wealth for capital, you know, both domestic and, and international. And so um, that has really driven um, much of what we're seeing in terms of the economics of housing affordability. And I think to the points earlier made around public housing and social housing, um, I think there are a lot of things that many of us could agree that could be improved in terms of how public housing has been done in the United States. Um, and certainly there's not one singular ownership or op operational model that would need to be followed, as Joan mentioned. And um, one of one of the international examples, there are nonprofits that that manage social housing in, in other countries. And so there's different ways to approach it. Um, but with, you know, with significant federal investment, um, local and state programs can be established. Um, and, you know, that focus on quality that Joan mentioned is really key because, of course, we want um, a significant investment. Um, and we want that investment to last for generations. And so this should be very high quality um, housing that is, you know, um, very accessible and affordable, but also could be mixed income, um, it, you know, as other social housing programs are done um, around the world. Um, you know, that those higher um, rents, of course, help subsidize the lower um, rents. And you know that focus on quality is essential. Um, we do have some barriers in front of us at the federal level. We have the Fair Cloth Amendment that needs to be repealed that essentially puts a, a limit on the number of public housing units that can be um, in a given area um, held at, I think, the 1999 um, baseline levels. Um, and that just stands in the way of, of so much opportunity in terms of investing in social housing. But even with that, um, tremendous investment can be done. And, um, and at the local level, I'll just add that there's, um, in LA is a great example, there's a great opportunity to be thinking regionally and thinking comprehensively. We don't have a singular um, regional 
body that um, can help uh, pull together land, assemble land, um, and uh, you know drive the economies of scale that can come with um, that reach. And that's that's a tremendous opportunity in front of us. There actually is a lot of public land available um, across local, state, you know, regional school districts, and so forth um, that can be utilized, pulled together. Um, and reach you know thousands of units um, in you know on an annual basis, and so there's a lot that can be done there. Um, when we have a chance, um, I won't take up time right now, but I do want to come back to some of the, the federal legislation around uh, land use. Well, that's a that's a good point. Let's let's talk a little bit about some some federal what the federal possibilities are then, um, because in the chat here, Jasmine asked a good question, which is. You know, why is it that other countries like Singapore have been able to make progress in areas like social housing, but we haven't? And Joan pointed out we have a much more free market ideology here. And so first I wanted to ask, Joan, are you optimistic for the Biden administration changing that ideological bent and being able to actually make change? Are you hopeful for Representative Marsha Fudge, who is going to be the incoming secretary of HUD, the congresswoman from Ohio? Uh, what do you maybe give us a little optimism? What do you think the future holds? <laughs> you know, uh, should I just pass? Because I don't want to be a downer. <laughs> no, I, we like honesty here. <laughs> you know, I think that um, <laughs> I think that we have much more dire things to deal with, like you know, suppressing white supremacy. Um, uh, promoting social justice and racial justice. And um, housing is part of it, but you saw some of the dollar amounts. You saw some of the numbers that I posted just now. It's really, really daunting. Um, but, you know, you guys are all, you know, young people here, and I'm just turning it over to you. Solve the problem, please. I'm counting on you. Well, let's let's think then about what we can do about it. Uh, Christina, you've been involved in activism before. Uh, do you have any thoughts about how we can push the Biden administration in a positive direction towards some of the reforms that we're talking about? Well, to some extent, I have to be a little bit of a downer on that because it's going to take a long time and it's going to take a lot of hard work on our part. But but I do think that there is absolutely something we can do, um, which I think I hope people young and old are, are interested in, um, which is join with each other in an organization, talk to each other, formulate collective demands, formulate collective strategies. I mean, there's, there's no shortcut to that kind of political organizing, right? Uh, I'm a member of a tenants union, which takes its model from the idea that in workplace organizing, the workers don't have a lot of power as individuals, but if they were in a union, they could negotiate with the boss who has more, more power with them and negotiating as a group would, would help them secure their interests, right? Tenants unions have the same ideas, although they're not sort of as uh, familiar to people or formalized um, in national labor relations law or anything like that, but you can form associations with your neighbors. Um, it's pretty easy to do if you live in, a uh, multifamily apartment building and you, and you have the same landlord, but even if you don't, you can form groups with, with your neighbors and then you can join larger tenants unions, which tend to be at the city level connecting tenants 
all over. That kind of collective action has to happen. It, people uh, in the Biden administration don't really have uh, a large incentive to put these billions and, and trillions of dollars, given how many other things they have to do, and as Tom was pointing out, how much resistance um, they'll have in Congress. So there, there needs to be a very large push from the public. Um, it's not about, we'll never figure out the perfect thing to do, like there's some secret thing we could do that would make them go along with us. It's, it's actually very simple. It's about forcing their hand with your leverage of we are more than you. We are voters. We have powers of public. We can do things uh, as a group to show what we want. But that's, that's hard. And <laughs> it's really hard to build. And, and it takes years and, and years and maybe even generations um, uh, to do that kind of work. But it's definitely something you can and, and should be doing right now, which is join a political organization. Uh, if you're a tenant, join a tenant's organization. If you are homeless, join an organization for people that are homeless. All of, all of these things exist and the best way for the public uh, to make an impact politically is as collective and not as individuals. Well, with you talking about long-term change, it makes me want a history lesson. And I've found over the last hour that when I want a good history lesson, Tom remembers everything that has happened to housing policy uh, since at least the 60s that we've been getting some great ones. So Tom, I'm I'm looking to you for a little optimism here. What are the ingredients that you've seen for when you've observed a positive change in this field? And do we see any of those ingredients happening right now? Thank you. And yes, first of all, I'm, I'll do the little, I'm a, a little weary of our new HUD secretary. She wanted to be secretary of agriculture. Um, and she was mayor of a town. I just did a little checking on her. So it's to be seen, but we have an administration committed. So she isn't going to be idle like under Reagan and under uh, Trump. So I think she will be capable of doing some good things. And they've appointed a few people to support her, assistant secretary, who I think will be good. A big change. We have a Democratic administration, but precarious. You know, it's. They're going to be very careful because they have elections in two years and could lose control of Congress. But the state of California, I did a project in Calabasas. And just to give it positive, the city manager and the director of community development said to me, if you don't know where Calabasas is, it's in the west end of the San Fernando, it's just past the San Fernando Valley, the west end of LA County. It's as wealthy as Beverly Hills. And I approached about 10 years ago, I approached that I found a, a, an acre of land and I proposed a four story building, 100 units of senior housing. And this director of the two staff members said, Why would you want to do this in our community? We don't have any uh, poor people living here. And I said, Exactly. Um, but Bottom line, they didn't support it, but I worked the city council and we got the support. And unfortunately, we only got two votes for a four-story building, but we got four out of five for a four for a three-story 75-unit building. In order to finance this project, the land costs three million. I got a million of the city's affordable housing trust fund. They had two million in their coffers. 
they still haven't spent the other million. I then went to the county of Los Angeles and got community development, two and a half million community development block grant money. I then went to the state and got three and a half million from Proposition 1C. There were propositions in the ballot 10 plus years ago that helped pay for affordable housing. I then got federal tax credit. I got an equity investment who bought the credits from Chase. I got a million dollars from the Federal Home Loan Bank. It's mind-numbing doing that. I used to think it was pretty difficult working for HUD. And then I used to say the only thing worse than working at HUD is working with HUD. And because at HUD, I had control of things and working with them, I had to you know, beg and plead. But back then under Section 8, for example, HUD handled everything. They provided the financing, they provided the subsidy funds, they backed into the rent. I had one attorney at a closing. Now, can you imagine how many attorneys I have? Because every one of those funding sources sends an attorney. I've had eight and 10 attorneys doing a closing. But what's so positive is state, local, county, city are all involved. And now we have an administration on a federal level that is committed to this program. So we have all levels of government here in California, where we live, that are maybe not in your community. Pomona, I know, is good. But, you know, each community, it's up to them, unless the state intercedes. And I wanted to say one point in Calabasas, in order to get those four votes for a three-story building, the city attorney reminded the consul that there is, that he could sue EI, our firm, could sue the city because the state had a law in place that each city had to do its fair share of housing, affordable housing. And, and the city had never allowed, allowed it. So all of those things are positive possibilities out there. But what needs to happen is we need to change a lot of independents and Republican minds to make housing a right and a necessity. And uh, that needs to happen on a federal level and city by city, state by state. All right, Joe, I'm going to throw one more question to you. So Tom gave me a little bit of optimism about city and state and federal working together. And he's talking specifically about HUD. You had mentioned legislation. Do you think there's room to be optimistic about how Congress might be able to contribute to this? Well, I've addressed it on the uh, federal, state, and local level. Land use prerogative is usually vested in local cities. But um, for the first time, really, the federal government is talking about putting some financial carrots and sticks to encourage um, local jurisdictions to do the right thing on land use issues. So that's a change. That That is a, actually a very meaningful change in, in how, how the federal government is looking at this. On the state level, I do feel a certain amount of optimism um, because in the last few years, the state legislature has made a lot of effort to do land use reform. So, for example, um, CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, um, for affordable housing that um, there are exemptions and protections now in place that would allow um, affordable housing projects to 
um, move forward without um, without uh, you know the kind of um, bogus law generating kind of bogus lawsuit that uh, Tom mentioned um, that he encountered and I encountered um, in the past. Um, it, it you know without going into details, it's like a back backdoor way of protecting affordable housing, but I'll take anything that works. And I think that there are attempts to densify in the right places and while protecting um, tenants and uh, existing affordable housing. So those are all very positive. On the local level, it's really hit and miss. I have to do a shout out to LA City. I think that they have been leaders in um, in uh, in um, trying to solve the affordable housing crisis through land use reform. Um, for example, Measure JJJ, which was passed, I think, three, four years ago. And um, yeah, but LA County, you know, if you're only talking about LA County itself, LA County has 88 cities. And if one city is doing the right thing, or maybe, okay, so I'll count Santa Monica in there too, and, and maybe West Hollywood. You know, um, we still have a lot of cities that are just sitting on their hands because it's a losing proposition for the elected to do, to, um, to change the rules in order to um, create more inclusionary housing, uh, more density, change the way people um, live and work. And that's why I pretty much have given up on working on these issues at a local level. You know, I don't have enough time or energy to do that. You know, most of my work now, policy work is on the state level because, you know, you change a state, you are meaningfully changing um, a, a large, large swath of the geography and the population. That is the crux of the problem, isn't it? Well, we're near the end of time, and I always like to at least give everyone a minute or two back at the end. So I'm going to call it here, even though I could keep talking with you all for a long time. Um, I want to thank our guests so much, uh, Tom, Joe, Joan, Christina. I thought this was a fantastic conversation. I learned a lot. I think our audience did. I think you underscored something important, which is that even if we all don't necessarily agree on exactly the right course because these are difficult issues. Um, all four of you come to this with incredible passion and compassion. And I think that housing policy would be in a better place if that was reflected in the leadership. Um, and I hope that the Biden administration and the leadership of HUD has people like the four of you uh, in charge for the next four or more years. Uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, thank you to CCEP and Cal Poly for hosting this. Uh, please look forward to our future events. Take care. CCEP would like to once again thank California Humanities for their generous support of this podcast. A special thanks to our panelists and audience members, and thanks to you for listening.